You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I bounded over the gray, dusty terrain toward the huge dome of Conrad Bubble. Its airlock, ringed with red lights, stood distressingly far away. It's hard to run with a hundred kilograms of gear on, even harder in lunar gravity, but you'd be amazed how fast you can hustle when your life is on the line. Bob ran beside me. His voice came over the radio. Let me connect my tanks to your suit. That'll just get you killed, too. The leak's huge, he huffed. I can see the gas escaping your tanks. Thanks for the pep talk. I'm the EVA master here, Bob said. Stop right now and let me cross-connect. Negative, I kept running. There was a pop right before the leak alarm. Metal fatigue. Gotta be the valve assembly. If you cross-connect, you'll puncture your line on the jagged edge. I'm willing to take that risk. I'm not willing to let you, I said. Trust me on this, Bob. I know metal. I switched to long, even hops. It felt like slow motion, but it's the best way to move with all this weight. My helmet's heads-up display said the airlock was 52 meters away. I glanced at my arm readouts. My oxygen reserve plummeted while I watched, so I stopped watching. Andy Weir built a career as a software engineer until the success of his debut novel, The Martian, allowed him to pursue writing full-time. His new novel is Artemis. Thank you for joining me, Andy. Thanks for having me. You are an absolutely prime uh, purporter of what I would call science faction, which is science fiction that combines this element of complete fantasy, but wrought in such a way and based on such well-researched and well-grounded subject uh, science that it feels like you're writing about the present, even though you're writing about the future. Well, isn't thanks. That, isn't that, <laughs> uh, doesn't that, like, uh, that contradiction, uh, doesn't that bother you sometimes to be writing, like, fantasy about reality and reality about fantasy? <laughs> no, it doesn't bother me at all. That's what I love to sit around and daydream about. And it's like where we could go with technology in the kind of immediate future, not necessarily, like, 500 years down the line. One of the things I think that you do so well in this book is this is set on a base on the moon, Artemis, and you have imagined this moon base practically down to to the bolts, it seems. How much uh, research did you do in terms of just creating this place before you even began writing the plot? Oh, ludicrous. Ludicrous amounts of research. I had designed the entire city of Artemis um, uh, like it, before I came up with any plot or characters, like basically first I had to work on the economic foundation. Then, uh, then I said like, okay, here's why the city exists economically. Then I had to figure out, okay, where, where do you build it on the moon? Okay, here's a good spot. And why, uh, how, you know, what do you build it out of? What local materials can you use? And I'm skipping over a whole bunch of information here. So it is <laughs> not to put your listeners to sleep, but, uh, but yeah, and so the, the really tough thing is that I worked all this stuff out, and only like maybe 1% of it is in the book, because the rest of it is all stuff I worked out, it was ready if I needed it, but <laughs> I, I have to remember to kind of just just give the reader the information they need to follow along with the plot. Well, I think that's one of the things you did brilliantly. This book is also, I think, a an fantastic example of what you might call, I would call this a current day thriller. There's nothing in this book that requires us to imagine a whole bunch of science that seems just implausible. There's no hyperspace gates. There's none of that. This all could happen right now. And you've done such a great job of uh, creating really compelling characters in a kind of a, a rocket ship type <laughs> plot. <laughs> Appropriate. Yeah, Thanks. I'm uh, I'm glad you think so. Um, yeah, The Martian is actually, even though it takes place later, you know, it takes place further in the future than The Martian, it's actually more more scientifically accurate than The Martian. There's no, there's no, not even really any significant projections of existing technology forward. It's just it, everything in there is real tech. Yeah, yeah, you just pr pretty much drag a big chunk of the earth to the moon. <laughs> And, and well, set up shop. Well, for the most part, you drag a, a, you drag some stuff to the moon and then mm -hmm. use stuff you find on the moon to build the rest of your city. Well, I think that's uh, one of the things that seems so interesting to me is just the design of Artemis. Describe this city on the moon. How big is it and how is it built and what does it look like? 
Well, um, it's the whole city is only about maybe half a kilometer across, and it's a series of spheres, which they call bubbles, that are half underground, half above ground. So it does look like the canonical 1950s sci-fi moon city where there's a bunch of domes sticking out of the ground. You just don't see the other half that's underground. They're connected by tunnels. Um, the smallest of the domes is, uh, bubbles is a hundred meters across and all the others are 200 meters across. Uh, they have this, uh, very stable, solid double hold system to make sure there are no hull breaches. And if there ever is a problem, you can evacuate people from one bubble into the nearby bubbles and keep them safe while you repair the damage. Um, the, the number one element that you'll find present all over Artemis, including in the, the whole material itself, is aluminum. And there is an inordinate amount of aluminum on the moon. It's huge. It's just a huge supply. Um, it's, uh, yeah. And, and so one of the main things they do is they take local lunar ores, uh, the main one being anorthite, which is like incredibly plentiful and also right on the surface no pesky dirt to dig through this isn't earth you can literally just pick it up off the ground and uh, they smelt it using uh, you know smelting processes that exist today to separate out the aluminum and the byproduct is oxygen so the moon is just made of moon bases it gives you aluminum to build your bay uh, the aluminum to build your city and then oxygen to fill it up well yeah, that's pretty uh, fantastic uh and that's all real. That's that's that is what is on the moon. <laughs> it makes me wish we we think we should have been there uh, thirty years ago and not still waiting now. And but as you created this your city Artemis, I I have to think about you know the other famous moon bases in science fiction literature. There's of course Moon Base Alpha, which I was never too enamored of. <laughs> Seeing that that show was a little Space Ninety Nine was a bit silly, but uh, you're, you're saying that the entire moon just kind of like screwing off out of our solar system and traveling apparently faster than light. Maybe I don't know. It would go to other <laughs> locations, right? <laughs> that that always seemed a bit ludicrous to me. But uh, what the, I was really reminded of was another super realistic science fiction movie, uh, two thousand one, and the Clavia mm-hmm. Space. It seemed that that having seen that on the screen helped me really imagine this. Oh yeah, um, well, two thousand one, of course, is uh, good old fashioned hard sci fi. Although it has alien elements mm-hmm. to it. Um, Artemis doesn't. No spoilers there. There's no no, no moon men uh, jumping out at you. <laughs> well, one of the things you did too in creating Artemis is, um, in terms of this book, really, if you uh, look away from the science fiction aspect, this is a mystery thriller. It's it's a heist story. It's a yeah, heist. Yeah, it's, it's a crime novel. Yeah, really, it's a, it's a crime novel. And one of the things you do really well with this book is create what I would call an archetypal Bay City in space. Kind of. <laughs> Which is, yeah. you know, because when you look at all the crime shows on TV, they're all sit in set in Bay City. Yeah, something <laughs> like that. Well, especially, what is it, um, uh, Starsky and Hutch right. is literally set in Bay City. Mm-hmm. That's the name of the city there. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I think, I think this wasn't is, Baywatch also in uh, Bay City. I think it was actually um, might have been in its real place of Santa Monica. I was thinking of well, Veronica I know it was Mars. Shot there. Oh no, Veronica Mars was in Neptune. Oh, Neptune, Neptune, okay. California. Neptune, California. Yes, that's, that's <laughs> what it was. But um, yeah, uh, well, so you mentioned earlier, hey, why weren't we doing this thirty years ago? Well, it's because there has to be an economy for there to be a city, mm-hmm. um, and the economics, the the main conceit of Artemis is that it takes place in the 2080s time frame um, and um, competition in the commercial space industry has driven the price of low Earth orbit down low enough that middle-class people can afford to go to space. It's expensive. It's much cheaper to go on a nice European vacation, but you can, it, it is within reach to the middle class to afford trips into low Earth orbit and if you're willing to pay even more, a trip to the moon. So Artemis is a tourist city, and so that's how I put together its whole... If you look at Artemis, it's it's virtually... I mean, yeah, it's on the moon, it's in a bunch of bubbles and stuff like that, but if you look at the kind of layout and general feel, it's virtually identical to a Caribbean resort town. <laughs> it is. That's, wow. <laughs> that's what I based its economy on. You have the... The really, there, you have the area with high-end hotels and casinos and stuff like that for the tourists and high-end shops and stuff. And then 
you also have the place, the, the more modest accommodations of the people who live and work there. I th- thought you did a fantastic job on, on creating <clears throat> lunar tourism. It was re- you, you just worked out all the, the kinks to that. And one of the things that interested me, too, though, about the way you set up Artemis is um, in more of the underbelly parts, you realize that there is no space in space. Which yes. is to say, yes, yeah, <laughs> that the the accommodations are necessarily quite cramped. Well, um, depends on your uh, on depends your, on your wealth level. Yes, <laughs> um, yeah, but our our protagonist Jazz uh, is her name. She's um, she lives in what they what is technically called a capsule domicile. If you imagine a capsule hotel, but that's her home is one cell in like a capsule hotel type of thing. Although everyone locally just calls them coffins. And you can go in there, you can close the door, and that's where you sleep. It's basically a bunk. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a communal bathroom, you know, communal shower. Well, not well, whatever. You pay to take a shower. You, you <laughs> Well, what you're really paying for is the water purification. Mm. You know, uh, the, the, the bunks and the coffins, as you call them, it just really reminded me. I one time spent a night overnight on the Hornet. Oh yeah, the USS Hornet, uh-huh. and those cots there. You, I could, I did not sleep because you couldn't even. It was six inches above your face. Oh yeah, the, the next guy. Actually, to be fair, uh, the people in Artemis have a like compared to those uh, World War II sailors. They they had well, the people of Artemis has even the most impoverished people in Artemis have uh, spacious accommodations <laughs> compared to the sailors aboard a uh, aircraft carrier or a submarine or anything like that. Now, uh, as you, uh, one of the things I thought you did really well about the moon was uh, to describe the different immigrant populations and the way they, they coalesced. So tell us about Jazz, Jazz Bashara, her, mm-hmm. her father, and the Saudi Arabian uh, welding uh, mafia. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Let's, let's be clear. They're, they're a guild. Uh-huh. They're not mafia. <laughs> they can be a little rough and tumble like any guild. Uh, mm-hmm. But um, so... Basically, the way it works out, and I tried to base everything here on just emergent, observable human behavior. You mm-hmm. see this all the time. So first off, Artemis is a very international city. It's like, it's real simple. If you can, if you can afford to get there, you can live there. That's mm-hmm. it. There's no immigration control. It's kind of self-controlled by, the, by its own economy and by the incredible expense of living there. So, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, go back in time a couple hundred years, people moving to... Uh, the United States, you know, you go back to the early, the first half of the 1800s. Mm-hmm. It's like no limits. If you can get here, you can live here. But also, no one's going to take care of you. You're on, you're on your own if mm-hmm. you get here. Um, what tends to happen is industries tend to end up being like ethnically dominated, mm-hmm. because what happens is you get a few people who are artisans or experts or something at one field, and they establish themselves there then they bring in their family and they bring in their their compatriots they hire people that they know and so you end up with kind of uh a lot of like ethnic correlation with uh industries so in the case of jazz's case uh her her father uh is a welder and uh the majority of welders in artemis are saudi saudi immigrants and uh there is also a there are guilds um, Artemis is a completely unregulated economy. It's mm-hmm. uh, from a legal perspective, it's just out in the middle of international waters. I mean, maritime law applies. That's it, mm-hmm. really. And so you, there's there's no one to tell you not to try to do price fixing or price, you know, or carteling or whatever you want. And so there are many guilds around in Artemis that try to do that. However, there's also no rules that force you to be part of a guild. There's no rules that keep you from hiring people who aren't in a guild, whatever. So uh, Jazz's father is actually at odds with that guild. This is all a very small part of the story, by the mm-hmm. way, but um, he is highly talented and feels like he can. Uh, he doesn't need the support of the guild, and uh, he has a very solid reputation in town as an honest businessman and uh, a very good welder. You know, uh, I really like the... Uh, your character, Jazz, she's a really interesting character. Um, oh, thank you. And, and 
she tells the whole story in the first person. How, how did you come up with her voice? Because she's really fun to be with. I mean, that's the number one thing about this book. This is a fun as hell book to read. Well, I hope so. Um, she's a. It, it's very similar to The Martian in that it's the first person smart ass narration style, right? <laughs> um, jazz is very different than Mark, though. Jazz is whereas Mark Watney from The Martian is kind of the idealized version of me he's um he's all of the qualities i have in myself that i like and none of my many many flaws right mm. whereas jazz bashara is more like the real me uh she has my flaws or at least the flaws i had when i was her age she's 26 years old when i was her age i was a screw-up there's no doubt about it and i was also uh well jazz is a genius level intelligence smarter than i was but I mean, I'm still, I'm a pretty smart guy and I was not remotely living up to my potential. I was uh, just making, you know, you can be, you can be really intelligent and still make really bad life decisions left and right. And uh, that's the case with jazz. And so I, I projected, I projected a lot of myself into her character. Well, I, I like her her rap against her her constant bad life decisions because <laughs> yeah. for those of us who are good at who are actually good at making bad life decisions, <laughs> yes, he gives us something we can identify with. Yeah, um, well, I can certainly identify with it. It's basically me, like uh, you know, um, basically she got given every advantage in in life right at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Like that, well, I mean, she wasn't wealthy. Her father was a hard working man, and they grew up poor, but. It was his intention for, first off, he raised her and taught her how to weld. So she had a very useful <clears throat> a very useful trade skill, especially useful in a city that's almost entirely made of metal, right? <laughs> it, it is a very useful trade skill, and it was her intention for her to eventually take over his business, mm-hmm. right? And But she decided to go another way, and so she had every, con- she had every advantage, right? She had... Um, she is, <clears throat> she is a genius, like a genuine, like truly, truly gifted intellect. Um, she had a caring father who did everything he could to prepare her for the world and give her a skill that she would need. Um, and she's also physically attractive. Uh, and she still managed to take all of those advantages and just not just, and still screw everything up. And so, I mean, I think we all feel like screw-ups at times, mm-hmm. um, and most of those mistakes were in the past, and now she's trying to fix them. <laughs> you know, uh, your Artemis, of course, has to have dive bars, and I was okay. happy to notice that um, your your bar, uh, Hartnell's Pub, mm-hmm. was it coincidence that was named after the actor for who was the first Doctor Who? Not at all. Oh, good. Of course <laughs> it's an homage. You may have noticed that the bartender's name mm-hmm. it, at Hartnell's Pub is Billy. Uh, oh, of course. Yep. The, the famous uh, new companion. No, no, no. Oh. Not, uh, no. The first Doctor was oh, William, William Hartnell. Hartnell. You're right. God, I, <laughs> my little brain, I did not yeah. put that together. No, it's so. absolutely an homage to my favorite science fiction show, oh, Doctor absolutely. Who. Absolutely, yeah. We used to have many a band practice. I'd make us uh, sit and watch Doctor Who. I <laughs> love Doctor Who. Or band practice. Absolutely. I'll tell you, when I went to... Um, I went to the UK earlier this year, mm-hmm. uh, in April, and I said, like, huh, I... I want to shamelessly use my fame to meet the showrunner of Doctor Who. So I did. It worked. I called my I called my film agent and said, like, hey, can you set up a meeting with me and Chris Chibnall? And he's like, sure. Sure, let's see if we can do that. And I got to have beers with Chris Chibnall while I was in... <laughs> Oh, I was in London, and I'm like, man, this is great. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, this book has a has a very interesting uh, look at, at economics. And I want to start with something that happens before the book even begins, which is uh, the creation of Artemis. Mm-hmm. I thought you did a really brilliant job of figuring out a way to create this city on the moon in a manner that was peaceful and, and I mean, really super positive, upbeat. <laughs> That's tough to pull off in this world, isn't it? <laughs> oh, thanks. Well, yeah, there's a lot of... For some reason, science fiction seems to have been hijacked by dystopian, like, <laughs> misery stories about where mankind's only hope is, you know... Get, 
is plucky teenagers saving us from our fascist governments or something like that. And I just, that's not the sort of story I like to read. So it's not the kind of story I like to write. Um, now, are you talking about the formation of, of the Kenya Space Corporation? The or Kenya are you talking Space about- Corporation. Yeah. yeah. I thought that was a really great, the way you worked that out. <laughs> well, uh, within the story, within the context, the nation of Kenya um, managed to draw the entire, well, pretty much the whole global space industry into its borders by... Um, by taking advantage of a few things. First off, it's on the equator, and launching from the equator is much. It takes much less fuel than launching from other po- points on Earth. That's why every country's launch complex is kind of as southward as it can be. That's why mm-hmm. ours is in Florida. Mm-hmm. Opaloka. Um, what's that? Opaloka. Is Opaloka. That- uh, I don't know yeah. exactly. Yeah. I, I don't know the name of the city it's in. It's just Cape Canaveral, uh-huh. right? Um, but uh, because Earth is rotating, if you're at the equator, you get a bunch of velocity for free. Sure. And you end up getting about one-sixteenth the total velocity you need to get into orbit just by launching from the equator. That's so a lot of fuel savings. That's a lot of fuel savings. So that's one thing they had to offer. Another thing is Kenya's on Africa's eastern coast, which, and since you always launch to the east to take advantage of Earth's rotation, that means you're launching out over the water. So there's no concerns about, you know, launch failures, hurting people in, mm-hmm. you know, on the ground. Um, so that's another thing they had to offer. But the main thing they did was they, 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 they could offer policy. Right now, I mean, in the real world, I've talked to a lot of people who are interested in private space ventures, like Moon Express, for instance, is a group that wants to win the Lunar X Prize. And they've said, like, the problem uh, with private space exploration or commercial space flight and stuff like that is no longer technology. It's policy. Mm. Policy is what gets in the way. Sure. Um, an example with Moon Express is that they they have, you know, they use modern communication systems that are like really, really low energy consumption. They can communicate back and forth with Earth. But U.S. law requires them to also use, U.S. laws that were written over 50 years ago require them to use these clunky power-sucking FM radios so that the U.S. government can monitor what they're up to to make sure that they're not violating the Outer Space Treaty. Um, and those things being so out of date, just like endless red tape is a huge pain in the ass. So what Kenya did was they said, like, we're not going to do any of that. You can just come here, just, you know, make sure you let uh, our air travel system know when you're going to launch something so we don't crash planes into your rockets. But other than that, like, do your thing. Also, reduce taxes, much lower taxes for the space industry than anything else in Kenya to help draw them in. Not zero, though. Uh (laughs) I mean, they want to make their money, too. Uh And then um, all sorts of special rules allowing them to use business practices that would not be not be cool, you know, in most of the cases, like, oh, you want to you want to do union busting? Go ahead. We don't care. Do what you got to do. Bring that industry into Kenya. And it ends up, it works, and it makes them a first world nation. And so the uh, Kenya Space Corporation, which is actually sort of a conglomerate formed by over 50 major corporations worldwide, um, effect, owns Artemis in that they built it. And then they're, well, and one last thing, their whole policy is they don't, care what goes on in Artemis. They just build Artemis. They're in the business of creating real estate and they rent it out. They never sell property. They always rent it. And so everybody in Artemis is ultimately renting the lot that they're in and that money goes to KSC. And they don't, they're not interested in policing it. They don't want to tell you what to do with your life. They're just like, we have made habitable space on the moon and you can rent it from us. (laughs) And they make a bunch of money off that. <laughs> well, that seems like a, a, a solid business proposition. I, you know, you. I thought it was very interesting that you said at the beginning that the first um, raison d'être for this was the economics, and I think that that's interesting. That the the real science and in one of the places that you do science fictional extrapolation and invention is in the dismal science economics. <laughs> well, um, you know, it's a science just like any other, and I'm actually really into it. Mm-hmm. I, th- I, I get excited by economics. It is something that's really interesting to me. But I acknowledge it's something that's not that interesting to the readers all the time. So, you know, one thing we learned from The Phantom Menace— uh, <laughs> Don't start a science fiction story with a description of complex macroeconomics, right? (laughs) 
So, but it's there. I worked it all out in advance and I just have it come out where it needs to be. I actually wrote like a, a, a paper on the economics of where the commercial space industry could drive prices down to, like mm-hmm. how low they could be driven to, where I think the price point for putting mass or humans into low Earth orbit would go if the space industry were as efficient as the commercial airline industry. And I'll spare you the like 10 page explanation of that here on your show. But um, if anybody wants, it's on businessinsider.com. They, they, they published that uh, paper. So if you're, uh, if you're as interested in economics as I am, you can look it up and you can find out exactly how much it costs within the context of Artemis to send stuff to the moon. You know, uh, it, it strikes me that um, I, I, one of the things that really knocked me out about this book was that the economics uh, of this informed the characters so much and that's you know we this is one of the things I really liked about this book was that so many often in books people don't their jobs aren't important but this is like they're really they're absolutely core to their identity in this book I honestly believe that economics drives just about everything I mean, if, if you think about it, if you name any war in history, I bet you I can do a short amount of research and show you why it ended up, it, why it happened for economic purposes, regardless of whatever ideology was used as an excuse, right? Mm-hmm. And also, the ultimate proof that economics is the most powerful factor in your life are long-distance relationships. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Why, why, are, why does anybody live in a long-distance relationship. It's because they have to work in two different places. Their economics is more important than being together with the person that you love. <laughs> and that's just the nature of things. It's more, it's, you have to gather resources to survive. Mm-hmm. And if you have to do that in two different places, if, you, if the economics dictate that these two people who are in love have to be in two different places, they don't, it's, it's rare for, they will attempt to find an economic solution so that they can co-locate, but until they do, they stay apart. That's a fascinating Econ- observation. Economics drives your life. It drives everything. It's always the most. It's like if I said, "Hey, let's start a hobby. Let's let's build a boat together. You and me, we're buddies. Let's mm-hmm. say we're retired and we don't have jobs or anything like that." And I'm like, "Let's let's work on that." And after a while, maybe we kind of like the project falls off a bit and stuff like that. But you know. When you're at work, it's like you have to be there all day. You go there every day, and your life, you're, you have to. It is simply understood that you orient your personal life around your work schedule, mm-hmm. not the other way around. Absolutely, yeah. Which is why uh, we are, are all supposed to sleep our eight hours, mm-hmm. so are well rested for the eight hours of work. Yeah, that we're going to have to be doing. Yeah. As a, one of the things that strikes me, you're writing for Business Insider, and you're writing science fiction. Um, sure. Well, I mean, Artemis is has economic fiction. Oh, oh right? yeah, absolutely. No, I I, <laughs> I did a piece for NPR long ago about a coming surge in e- what I would call economic uh, the economic fiction genre. Well, okay, well, the, Artemis is part of that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, in a roundabout way. But um, you know what I was getting at is that you have become, in a sense, by virtue of your fiction. You have become an expert in things of fact, the facts your fiction is based <laughs> upon, so that now you have your fiction has led you to a new kind of uh, realm of being a, an expert. In, in. I tend to uh, I tend to push back on on the word expert mm-hmm. because real experts uh, that's it's not fair to real experts to call me an expert. I'm an enthusiast. Okay, so I, I, I am very excited by these topics, but real experts are people who dedicate their lives to the study of these topics, and they know way more than I do about them. <laughs> that said, um, this book, Artemis and the Martian, reached about 10, I would say 100 times as many <laughs> eyeballs and brains as did any paper or anything written by an expert mm-hmm. and bringing these ideas out into the world is as important as you know uh making sure all the nuts uh, uh <laughs> fit on the right bolts <laughs> yeah yeah so yeah. talk about uh, just do you 
as you're you're going to continue write, writing fiction, do you see yourself becoming more involved in the space programs? Or have you been I mean, asked like to? in the real world? Yeah. I mean, oh, aren't, um, aren't SpaceX courting you right no, now? No, no, not they at all. Aren't? No, there's nothing there's nothing that that the real experts have to learn from me. There's nothing there's nothing I've thought of that a thousand people haven't already thought of. Um, it, a good story. Okay, well, there you go. <laughs> I I'm sure their PR departments would like <laughs> Would like to have me working there, uh, you know, uh-huh. stuff like that. But as a scientist, no, absolutely, there's nothing that there, there's nothing they're going to learn from me. <laughs> as the novel opens, we meet Jazz, and uh, she's in the midst of a test, which uh, I'll let our readers find out what she <laughs> does. But uh, talk about uh, creating, you know, the the plot for this book, just the the forward motion. Um. Um, so I'm not well, you start off in the middle. You talked about oh. you don't want to start off with an explan- <laughs> a macroeconomic explanation. You take the exact opposite. We meet her in media res. Yes. yes. No, I mean, I always think you should start with something interesting. My philosophy is you have, you have one sentence to convince the reader to read the first paragraph. And you have the first paragraph to convince them to turn that first page, you know, to, to keep finishing that first page. If they turn the first page, you've probably got them for a chapter. And it's kind of like starting a car. You just mm-hmm. But I mean, you should never start a never start a book with a description of a mountain range or something <laughs> some dry exposition. It's like no, you catch their attention right away. Um so uh writing we have Jazz's plot of she she finds herself in trouble. Uh <laughs> <laughs> Spends most of the book in trouble one way or another. <laughs> yes, uh, creating it and then uh, avoiding that which has <laughs> been created, uh, uh, largely self-inflicted. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but in between that, we have a, a, another kind of uh, thread, which is a series of letters between mm. her and somebody back home. And I think that was a really interesting uh, move on your part because it does create some tension there, and you do a great job of putting a plot into those letters too yeah i mean i wanted to find a way to um tell jazz's backstory some of jazz's backstory some of her youth and her experiences that took place before the opening of the book and i didn't want to have flashbacks per se because i kind of hate those Mm -hmm. um i don't like I don't like it when I'm a reader and the plot is advancing and then it's like, okay, now the plot's going to stop advancing and we're going to do something else. Mm -hmm. I'm like, don't, what, why? So these letters to Kelvin, that's Mm -hmm. her pen pal back on earth. um, She basically, it was a school assignment when she was nine years old to write a letter to a pen pal back at the Kenya space uh, complex in, in Kenya. And so it's this kid named Kelvin Otiendo, who is a student at one of the school's at the complex, his father works for the complex. Um, and and so therefore, uh, and KSC, you see hints of it here and there, is a, a pretty nice company. Mm-hmm. Like they're not an evil corporation, right? No, they, I, they I don't, like that about them. Yeah, they don't, uh, they don't mess around with the people who live in Artemis. They just collect rent. And then um, as for the people who work at the complex, all their kids get free school and stuff like that. So anyway, Kelvin is one such kid, and the two of them are both nine years old when they start talking. And then just so at the end of each chapter, there's like a little, a couple of back and forth like emails, basically pen pals between Jazz and Kelvin as they go forward in life. And then this lets me hit just the the relevant moments of her life here and there with snippets of these letters without having to, you know, time jump and do all these other annoying things that are that are jarring to the reader. Now, it's just uh, a device. Yeah, well, well, it's fun because um as as it moves forward it really ties into the rest of the plot and we, they become even more part of the page turning effect. Yes, yeah, uh it, it is not yeah, it the those letters end up catching up with and tying into the main plot line yeah very nicely and i thought you did a great job of the of creating the bay city uh <laughs> bay city uh criminal element uh tron <laughs> well he's not not tron landvik yeah well he's not a criminal he's he's a he's a business magnate mm-hmm. if anything jazz is the criminal element right mm-hmm. 
But yeah, he needed something done. (laughs) (laughs) And so he hired her. He's actually, I tried to uh, make him, actually, he's pretty likable. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, no, I like him. is a likable guy, especially his motivation for moving to the moon in the first place. Well, I have to say, you know, thinking about that, actually, I would say all the characters in this book are likable. And that's one of the things about this book that makes it so engaging is that we like we're ha- we're happy to meet everybody we see even though not we don't love all of them but we <laughs> like all, uh, all of them yes um, thank you did when you were creating these characters like uh bob and dale uh so uh you um these people are kind of like they're not exactly our friends but they're sort of our friends so i think you do a good job of creating this um feeling of a community a small community yeah that's exactly what it is it's a small town mm-hmm. artemis is not manhattan it's mayberry <laughs> you know it's it's two thousand people exactly you know yeah i hadn't thought about that it's, it's a it's a classic american small town on the moon yeah well it's also a classic american well it's not american mm-hmm. right oh sure it's international but it's like a classic frontier western town almost uh-huh. everybody knows each other and they're all very reliant on each other like this is a this is a society that is out in the harshest of environments. They they have to work together and they all know each other. <laughs> well, you do it. There's a great. Uh, we were talking about economics, and I I just there was a wonderful single paragraph summary of economic evolution towards the end of the oh, book by by the administrator. <laughs> yes, I thought you did a great job with that. <laughs> well, that's just that's the administrator's view. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Uh, administrator Ungugi who is um, she is the one who runs Artemis. She's the Kenya Space Corporation. She works for Kenya Space Corporation. She administrates Artemis and she lives and works in Artemis. And she was also the finance minister of Kenya mm-hmm. who came up with the whole plan to bring the space industry in. So she's an economics genius, is the idea. Now, um, one of the things that I think is interesting in this book is there's a kind of a a moral calculus in a caper (laughs) novel. You want people to break the law for a reason that we can kind of get be with but at the same time you know they're going to be breaking the law and maybe people will die and so i think you did a good job of like really oh, thank you balancing that equation how was that did that come easily no, yeah that that part's pretty easy i mean heist stories if the if the people doing the heist are the protagonists they're pretty easy to do you you, you just need to for the most part the audience will forgive just about anything other than murder or rape Seriously, like sure. if it's a bunch of people who are like robbing Fort Knox, you'll root for the people, even though you're like, you know, it's wrong to rob Fort Knox. That, 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 that's incorrect. You should not do that. And if you get caught, you should go to jail. But you still end up rooting for them, uh-huh. you know. Um, so as long as they're not victimizing people in some, in some way, as long as you don't feel like the, the criminal's actions are going to harm people who don't have it coming Mm-hmm. Then, uh, then it's pretty easy to root for the criminal because I think we've all we've all daydreamed about being master criminals in the past. <laughs> we've all daydreamed about how could I rob this bank, yeah. you know? <laughs> well, I think too that uh, uh, one of the things you mentioned is that uh, frontier towns are great places, and uh, Artemis itself is a great place by virtue of its currency, the slug, for money laundering. Yes. Our favorite crime of all time is America's <laughs> number one crime. Is it? I guess it sounds like that uh, at this point. Yeah, probably. Probably. Yeah. Well, Artemis. Yeah, because of the their currency is this completely unregulated and largely untracked system. Um, it's purely digital, so you'd think it would be really easy to track, but. Um, Artemis doesn't put really any effort into identity verification. They All they care about is identity theft. Mm-hmm. So if I try to spend your money, they, they have all sorts of things that would make that very, very difficult for me to try to get away with mm-hmm. if I'm trying to you know, pretend to be someone else and spend their money. But I can make 20 aliases <laughs> and no one cares. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know... Uh... That too kind of brings like, sorry, but in the book in a couple of places, Jazz casually creates aliases. Oh yeah, well that's with her That's why money laundering is so easy. Well yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and one of the things that makes it easy, I thought you did a good job with the gizmo. 
Ah, uh, yes. Gotta <laughs> love the gizmos. Yeah. So explain what a gizmo is and how it works. Well, a gizmo is basically like the next generation of smartphone. Mm-hmm. Realistically, I'm sure we'll have things that are like gizmos well before the era of Artemis. But basically, um, it's your whole identity. It's everything that has to do with you. It's your phone. It's your texting system. It's your computer. You don't have like a computer at home and a cell phone like you do now. You just have your gizmo. When you're at home, if you like, you can put it in a cradle or something like that. And now that now you're that's your computer. But that's everything is there in that one device. It's also your keys. You wave it across a panel to open your door. Um, you do all your bank. It's your wallet. You do all your banking with it. You do all your money transfers with it. Everything like that. So um, it is basically everything you carry on your person. And your personal and, and your PC at home, all in one d- device. You know, uh, one of the things that I, I really loved about this novel was the uh, the checkoff effect. Uh, the various times that Chekhov's gun. Yeah, the guns. There are various yeah. guns on these walls. They're <laughs> yeah. not, not not always guns. Sometimes they're just uh, long <laughs> vacuum tubes that people climb down. <laughs> yeah. Uh, wait. wait uh, which, uh, the, the, the extension tube. Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, used for, um, yeah, rescue. for rescue. Yeah. yeah. I thought you did a good job at uh, sneaking that in, s- setting those things up like that. Did- the, trick, the trick with a Chekhov's gun is not to let them know that that's what it is. Uh huh. You never, you I show, never figured it out until after the fact. If you, but that's the goal is like if somebody, um, how do you put it? If there's some random bit of exposition in there that tells you something. Mm hmm. Then, then you're going to be suspicious as a reader, going, "Well, that's going to come up later, mm-hmm. right?" But if you find a way to work it into the story, the reader goes, "Like, oh, the reason I was told about this thing is because it was relevant to this scene," mm-hmm. and then they just kind of like file it away. And then when it comes up later, they're like, "Oh yeah," <laughs> instead of like, "Ah, oh, I was wondering when this was going to come up." <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, I thought too. You did a great job of keeping the reader and the characters constantly aware of the fact that they're on the moon they're in a in a vacuum situation and where danger is is always very close and the the things you have to be worried about in particular fire fire is very bad yes <laughs> the whole city it's like the city has like very very few rules like mm. very very little in the way of laws but they have extremely stringent fire codes which is how jazz makes her money by smuggling in things like tobacco and lighters and other flammables but a fire inside of artemis would is you know would be a disaster like it's like a fire aboard a submarine it's mm. a you can't leave and there's nowhere for the smoke to vent to it's just you die so they have lots of rules including um anything that could make fires has to be done in a fireproof room. And so, and if you're in a fireproof room, when a fire starts in it, it seals off with you in it. They would rather you died in there than like everybody else died due to a fire spreading. But those rooms have air shelters. So you can run and get into a shelter and then await rescue by a fire brigade later, which happens in the book. <laughs> I, I think that uh, too, uh, as part of this, there's you do a good job of creating an argot of the moon. You know the the language, the hmm. specialized language that they have. And did you like have to? Did you, was that part of the pre-construction process, or did that uh, just come out of the prose? Just kind of made it up as I went along. I'm trying to think of uh, what you mean by that. Like slugs, obviously, is one thing, but. Or just to know, you know, the the regolith and the EVA suits. I mean, you oh. know, just... well, those are all terms that exist. Yeah, it's just uh, I guess a lot of people don't know them. Yeah, well, when they become part of the argot once you live mm. on the moon, that you better know what <laughs> you better know what that means. Yeah, yeah. Um, and also, too, there's a, a certain I love the the etiquette. Like, for example, of t- helping somebody take off their suits. and yep. stuff. yeah. That's well, that's like within the subculture of the EVA guild. Mm-hmm. You do a good job with the EVA Guild. You have you have a lot of fun with them. There are there are some tough folks there. Yep. Well, they're the they're the yeah they're they're the grizzled you know, folks, and they're they're very clannish. This guild. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, they're also uh, I think um, I guess very self protective is is the word I'd use it in in that they're they're you know they're a don't mess with with me union. Yeah, and that's yeah. A, a, a lot of that. Is the, 
that well, it's not on... like they'll come beat you up, or not the EVA guild. No, they're they're not like they keep you. They'll beat you up, but they have complete control over that industry mm-hmm. because they also um, that that guild controls all the airlocks. So you you literally can't go outside without the guild like letting you, and so y- you have to be a member of the guild for them to let you go outside. Or, I mean, be part of a tour group that's run by a guild master and stuff like that. If now, you're a tourist paying money for it, by all means, step right this way, <laughs> you know. <laughs> now, uh, and you do a great job, too, of uh, back to space tours. And I love the hamster balls. Yeah, hamster balls. <laughs> so e- EVA suits are hard to use. They're very mm-hmm. complicated. And so the the EVA masters, the people in the guild, are they have like these, I mean, they're more advanced than the Apollo era space suit, EVA suits, but they're big complicated suits with articulated fingers and you know and just like a lot of control whereas tourists can't be expected to be trained in all that stuff so what they do is they run around in a hamster ball (laughs) it's just this big inflatable clear plastic polymer very thick um, ball that keeps uh, an earth-like atmosphere around them or actually an artemis-like atmosphere around them and they can walk around just like a hamster in a hamster ball and they have a backpack on that man that manages the air it pulls this pulls the carbon dioxide out adds more oxygen regulates the temperature does all that stuff you talked about an artemis like atmosphere which is not exactly like earth's atmosphere right and i thought you did again uh you must be kind of uh tough to keep track of all the various science bits. oh yeah 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 it's an atmosphere so t- <laughs> tell us about the artemis atmosphere well artemis's atmosphere is just about a fifth of earth's sea level atmospheric pressure and it's pure oxygen um now on earth at sea level at sea level we have um you know one atmosphere of pressure and that air one-fifth of it is oxygen the rest of it is nitrogen and argon and other stuff that our bodies don't care about so a human body actually only needs about you know 21 percent of earth's atmospheric pressure uh but it needs that to all be oxygen if that's the case so if you think of it in terms of Artemis has the same density of oxygen atoms bouncing around as Earth's sea level atmosphere does. It just doesn't have any of the other atoms. So a lot of people think, a lot of people automatically associate a pure oxygen atmosphere with massive fire risk, mm-hmm. like Apollo 1. Well, Apollo 1 uh, exploded because they had 120% of Earth's atmospheric pressure, and it was all in pure oxygen. So they had like six times the density of oxygen atoms inside that capsule as you would find um, outside, you know, just in the air on Earth. And oxygen is a limiting reagent to combustion. So, I mean, that was just incredibly an incredibly dangerous situation. On Artemis, if you lit a piece of paper on fire or something like that, it would burn at the exact same rate as it would at sea level. Oh, interesting. Um, and the reason for all this, by the way, you might mm-hmm. ask, well, why, why do this? Um, because it makes everything easier engineering-wise. Um, you don't have to, uh, the hulls don't need to be as thick or as strong. They're only holding in one-fifth as much pressure, sure. stuff like that. Um, you know, the one of the things you do really well in this book is incorporate science into the action bits of the plot. There are a lot of great set pieces in this book, oh, uh, just really exciting pieces that you can barely turn the pages fast mm-hmm. enough to read. And you do a great job of, it, of you know, slicing in science. When you're, when you're writing those pieces, do you, does the science come before or after the action? Well, I mean, I work out what's going to happen mm-hmm. in advance, and it always has to be scientifically accurate. So I'll find other conflicts if the science gets in the way of a good one. I won't change the science. Um, in terms of the biggest challenge, though, is figuring out when to put the science in there. Mm-hmm. Because if you're in the middle of an action scene and then we just stop for two paragraphs to talk about science, that really breaks up the flow. And so that's where I have to like sneak it in earlier or make a very, very brief explanation Something like that. Well, there's lots of really fun parts. I, I love uh, boiling ice. <laughs> boiling ice? Bo- ice. Oh, boiling ice. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, or or just melting ice, you mean? Melting ice in... In, in, in uh, the scurry uh, packs? In yeah. The, well, in there's the hamster a, balls? One part, yeah. Well, there's one part where you say, where you talk about how uh, ice, the water in, in, when you're boiling ice, the water is frozen until the... 
the water's cold until the ice is melted? Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Um, so basically it comes down to, um, oh, this is when she's at the smelter. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's a property of all matter. It's not just ice, it's anything mm. else, where it consumes a bunch of energy to make it change state from, like, solid to liquid. Right. So, for instance... Ice, everybody knows, freezes at like zero Celsius, right? Mm -hmm. You know, water that is minus one Celsius is ice. Water that is positive one Celsius is liquid, right? Right. Okay. But actually, and you can heat up ice cubes or cool them down, heat up water, cool it down. But the actual transition Mm -hmm. of making it go from uh, ice to liquid from from solid to liquid, consumes an enormous amount of energy. So if you were to take um, a bunch of ice and just put it in a pot of water, and then you heat it up, Mm -hmm. you have like a a flames going on, you can put a thermometer in that pot, and it'll it'll read zero Celsius, right? It'll just keep, all Mm -hmm. the water will just be zero Celsius until you've melted the last bit of ice. Wow. And then and only then will the water start to heat up because all that energy is going into state changing the ice into water. It takes energy to move it. So ice is zero Celsius and water that's about to freeze is zero Celsius. But to go from one to the other takes a bunch of energy. And this is why this book is so thrilling in terms of you make science fun and also you have fun based on real science <laughs> uh, which is i think and um, this is a very tough thing to pull off and part of that i think is is your ability to have great characters and and a a, a great plot uh, a you know a very classic kind of uh crime plot this is uh chinatown in some ways it is exactly chinatown actually i'm glad you mentioned that <laughs> chinatown is one of my biggest inspirations for this story mm-hmm. uh, first off it's one of my favorite movies ever uh and second off yeah, Chinatown and Artemis are both about the ugly stuff that has to happen under the hood for a city to grow. And I was just thinking, one of the things you have a, a, an explanation in here and I, uh, about how things happen, and I, all I could think about was the tangled web of California's water rights. Right, exactly. And, and yeah. you kind of like uh, duplicated that on the moon. Yeah, no, I, I freely admit Chinatown is one of my big um, big inspirations for this. Yeah. <laughs> Forget it, Jazz. It's Conrad Bubble. <laughs> well, I, but you do a good job of keeping her. Um, you know, it seems she seems like a woman, and that was that must have was that a tough decision for you to write from a woman's point of view in this book? Well, I ended up. Uh, it, uh, I didn't really get to make that decision. Oh, <laughs> um, what happened was uh, so first I designed the whole city before I had any plot or a story in mind. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then I said, okay, time to come up with a story. So I kind of outlined a story. It's like, okay, here's what's going to happen. Here are the characters. Not like wrote the whole thing, but just outlined it. And um, I needed a kind of likable rogue smuggler type. And so I created Jazz Bashara right then. I was like, okay, well, what's a country I haven't used yet? Oh, Saudi Arabia. Okay, and we'll make it a woman. There, good, good enough. I mean, she was only going to be in like two or three scenes. That's it. (laughs) And then... Um, for reasons unrelated to jazz, that plot it just wasn't working out. I'm like, I don't like this. This is not that good a story. It's not that interesting. Um, nah, it's not working. So I said, all right, scrap it. Come up with a different idea. City's great. The setting is awesome. I need a different story. So I came up with a different story, and I stole elements from the first story that I thought were good and ditched elements I didn't, changed around who the main characters were, and so on and so forth. This time, Jazz was like um, a secondary character. She was still not the main character, not by a long shot. But I had to define a little bit more of her backstory and stuff like that because she was in more stuff. She was still the likable smuggler type, but now I'm like, oh, and she grew up there. And, uh, you know, I guess since she's from Saudi Arabia and she grew up there, then her dad must, or her parents must be there. So her dad's there. And sure, he's a devout Muslim. Why not? You know, and, and, so, and so on like that, right? But it still wasn't sitting well. Again, jazz was cool, but other elements of this, of this story were not working out for me. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, oh, okay, so I can't do this. But jazz seems interesting to me. So what if I wrote a crime novel? What if I wrote something revolving around her and the stuff that she's up to? And that's what uh, ultimately became Artemis. And by the time I got there, uh, jazz was so well kind of defined in my head 
as a Saudi woman with this backstory and stuff like that, that my imagination would have rebelled if I'd tried to change her into something I'm more familiar with, like a guy or a Catholic or something, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I, I just went, well, here I go. I'm going to write a Saudi woman, first-person narrative, too. You're right there in her brain <laughs> with her. So the biggest challenge was woman, right? Because mm-hmm. um, since she moved to Artemis when she was six years old and she grew up there, her culture is Artemis- Artemisian. Mm-hmm. She is an Artemisian, right? right. She's and, and you see that a lot, you know, uh, the... You know, some people immigrate to America. They they still have kind of their original values from their society, but their kids are thoroughly Americanized, right? Jazz is the same thing. Her father still has um, the kind of morals and ethics of, of someone who grew up in Saudi Arabia, and jazz is like thoroughly Artemisianized, for lack of a better term. Um, so... Yeah, that that that's kind of how I ended up writing a female lead, uh, a female Saudi lead. But like I said, okay, so the culture is not a problem. Uh, then comes the gender. All right, no matter how yeah, I mean, we're you know, men and women are intellectual equals, but we still look at things differently, mm-hmm. and we still think differently, and we still do things a little differently. And so I resorted to the only tool I had at my disposal, which is subject matter experts. In other words, women. So I, <laughs> I gave a copy of the first draft of the manuscript to every woman that I could trust. Um, not, you know, every woman I could trust not to throw it up on Pirate Bay. Mm-hmm. Basically, my girlfriend, my mother, my editor's a guy, but his boss is a woman. And his assistant is a woman. And then the copy editor was a woman. And we normally copy editors are told, just copy edit, don't you know, comment on plot or story or anything. But I'm like, no, no, no. I actually, I do want you to comment on anything where you feel like the female voice, where the voice doesn't sound right, where, where it takes you out. And I know w- women are not going to read this book and go like, oh, Andy understands women so well. No, they're not. <laughs> I just need to do well enough that I don't want f- female readers to be like yanked out of the story, you know, just like by some jarring... Thing. You know what I mean? I, ju- I don't want them to be just like, whoa, okay, well, that was super male. And now I'm, I, I, now they have to put effort in to go back to suspension of disbelief. So I just want it convincing enough. <laughs> well, I mean, I, mission accomplished. The book just. Well, you're a dude. Well, I, yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> but yeah, we're guys. So I, I don't know. I have gotten a lot of positive feedback uh, from women who say, yeah, she's fine. And then other women are like, no, not even close. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, it turns out with three and a half billion women on this planet, it's not like there's a single (laughs) archetype personality that will work, right? There's there's a bell curve there. (laughs) Right. Um, So, but for the most part, uh, with aside from like a fringe, for the most part, women are, the, the feedback I get from women are like, Either, yeah, she's fine, or, yeah, there's a few places where it didn't quite land, but it didn't, it didn't bug me. Now, uh, this book, you've created a super convincing setting, and, and that's just, I can visit, visit this in my mind, like I could go mm-hmm. on vacation. I feel like after reading this book, and that's the hallmark of a good book, yeah. I feel like I could go on vacation in the parts of the book. Good, that's I, what I want. Exactly. It is a tourist destination so it is. you know yes <laughs> yeah a book is a tourist destination uh, well, well i mean artemis is a tourist destination also uh, yes um will you be returning to artemis in your writing yes um i have already i had already decided that if artemis does well I'll, I'll write a sequel i've already got a sequel idea in mind mm-hmm. um and this time it'll be what what i really like is uh common settings among mm-hmm. multiple books mm-hmm. uh, and so the the next book will be it'll take place in artemis a few years after the events and and just like i mean like three years after the events of artemis and but it's a different main character Uh, jazz is not the main character she'll be in it but she's not the main character and um so what i love about this is i would love for artemis to be my kind of sandbox my personal playground where i can write Mm -hmm. lots of different stories and what i particularly love about that is I love that when I'm when I'm a reader. I mm-hmm. love a consistent setting when I'm a reader because, you know, a few books in, the setting just seems so incredibly concrete and tangible that there is no suspension of disbelief required at all. You just, you buy into it. I'm a fan of uh, Terry Pratchett, mm-hmm. uh, wrote the Discworld series. Um, and I... Uh, I, I loved reading his books. He wrote 30 books or so that all took place in this same world, but weren't a serial all covering the same characters. So it's like 
bunch of people who, in a lot of cases, never met each other. And sometimes they did. And I and think sometimes they did, which is, I think, uh, one of the powerful aspects of this. Um, and since uh, your first book, The Martian, was was so well adapted into a fabulous motion picture, yeah, they uh, did all right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, do uh, can we expect the same for this? Uh, we can we can hope. Uh, uh, Fox has bought the film rights, not just option, but. Bot, which oh. is cool. That Im- that implies a certain, uh, you know, a, a higher level of commitment on their part. And I mean, a whole bunch of stuff needs to go right, be- you know, for a film to be greenlighted. And oh. a lot of it is just luck and circumstance. And can we cast this person? Can't do the schedules line up and things like that. Uh, so far, uh, they have attached the directing duo of uh, Phil Lord and Chris Miller. Oh wow! And they are um, on the. Uh, deciding uh picking from many candidates on who will write the screenplay adaptation um and before you ask no i did not throw my hat into that ring Mm -hmm. um i think with very few exceptions i think it's a bad idea to adapt your own book into a screenplay because you're so wrapped up in it like oh yeah yeah i'm i well that plus this is my baby i don't want to lose any part of it but Uh you need to get rid of a bunch of stuff if you're going to make a screenplay so unless you're uh, for some reason there are some authors who are incredibly good at it like stephen king Mm -hmm. but i'm not stephen king (laughs) not yet (laughs) and uh, (laughs) and so um uh i i definitely prefer to have someone else do the adaptation the new book by andy weir is Artemis, thank you for joining me, Andy. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.